Hello, and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today, in episode 5, we're continuing the story of Ned and the Cali Gang, Victorian bushrangers from the 1870s. In the previous few episodes, we've had an overview of the saga, and then looked in detail at Ned's family and his early life. This time, we'll be concentrating on the family's move to the northeast of Victoria, where most of the following episodes will be focused. But if this is the first time you've downloaded the Australian History Podcast, first of all, welcome. But let me just mention, we are now making our way through that Kelly history in a chronological order. So it might be to your advantage to listen to the earlier episodes before listening to this one. Episode 2 will give you an overview of the entire story, if you do like to get that full view. But if you'd prefer to begin at the beginning with the in-depth story, start listening from Episode 3 onwards, Episode 3, Beverage, where the Kelly story starts looking at Ned's parents and his birth, and then Episode 4 for Ned's childhood in Avenal. As always, you can find extra supporting material for this episode on the Australian Histories podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au And I can be contacted via the tab there also. So now, let's consider episode 5, The Kelly's Move to Greta in the Northeast. Victoria's northeast is a spectacular region, consisting of diverse terrain, including rugged alpine ranges and high plains, thick bush and wide fertile river valleys, these days cleared and dotted with wineries, berries, fruit and nut farms. The climate there can be frosty and snowy in winter, and extremely hot and dry in summer. The seasons can bring devastating local floods, freezing winters, and scorching droughts and bushfires, sometimes all in the same year. With the bush-covered mountains surrounding those plains, it's not surprising that in the Kelly era it was considered a particularly harsh and threatening region, especially to the authorities and police transferred in from metropolitan Melbourne. As discussed earlier in episode 4, land in Victoria's northeast was opened up in the 1830s by squatters those willing to move into the wilderness areas and carve out cattle and sheep runs on the unallocated and ungoverned lands. Later, the government moved to control such settlement by leasing or licensing the occupation of that crown land. But the squatters originally occupying the stock runs in this manner felt that their endeavour would entitle them to eventual ownership of the land. And indeed, various acts did provide them some title, allowing them to purchase from the government the improved areas around their homesteads, for example. But the sudden gold rush in the 1850s vastly increased what was, at first, a transient population in the colony. Once the easy gold dwindled, many of the diggers wished to settle and farm, and by the 1860s, pressure to unlock the land had increased. As might be expected, after a generation of preferential treatment, the squatters around the country fiercely defended the status quo. Knowing this can give us a little insight into the clashes to come, and they look a lot like class wars in most cases. Many squatters took the opportunity to purchase land when they could, but when pressure for further land availability grew and the government began opening areas 
the squatters had previously considered theirs for others to buy, the most contentious in the northeast. They divided sections of land there into small holdings in order to get the ordinary man onto the land. The Victorian government, which was, of course, largely dominated by those landed gentlemen and bush aristocracy, was in turmoil, Making laws that would disenfranchise the now wealthy squatters in favour of the common man was not generally top of their to-do list. But when the Legislative Council rejected a bill which would have allowed poor men to select 320-acre lots of land, rowdy land riots occurred in Melbourne, including scuffles in Parliament House itself, and the common man was keen to have his disappointment noted. (laughs) The supporters of the bill protested, and they demanded, quote, a vote, a rifle, a farm. And so, under much pressure, a watered-down version of that land selection bill did pass Parliament. But this initially succeeded only in the majority of land marked for selection being handed to the existing squatters who could afford the large lots and thereby legitimise their runs. The author Carroll records that in two years... 750,000 acres of squatter leasehold that should have become available to the smallholding selectors was purchased instead by the existing squatters. So further land acts were refined and aimed at increasing land availability for those smallholders, but the implementation of the schemes were often still problematic, and rorting was rife. Squatters used loopholes and dodgy exploits to foil the purchase of land by the incomers. In a slight practice known as peacocking, some squatters, or a secret dummy purchaser acting on their behalf, selected the most valuable areas of the newly divided run, which would then in effect close anyone else out from purchasing the land around it. For example, if a squatter or his dummy gained title on lands adjacent to water, he may not need to purchase the other lands around because no one else was likely to want to select those, having no access to water. Or they faked development on the land, building phony homesteads, which would then give them the basis to obtain the title due to those, quote, improvements. As ever, those with the money and easy access to influential people and the law could work the system to their advantage and many were very successful at blocking the intent of these land acts, keeping many common selectors away. The idea may have been a good one for the wider community, but as often happens, the implementation ensured plenty of ongoing problems, social and individual. So, at least we've clarified who is a squatter and who is a settler in the northeast. The one with the crass title of squatter actually has all the advantage. They're the bush aristocracy, as they were known. The ones with the lucky-sounding moniker of Selector were most often the working-class rabble, the Irish Catholics with a tribe of kids trying to make a living on the leftover lots that the class-conscious just did not want moving into the neighbourhood. The odds of a harmonious community developing out of this social experiment were not high. When gold was found in the northeast region in 1852, about 20,000 diggers moved into the area, and the township of Greta, like many small hamlets there, grew to serve this gold rush population. But within three years, that easy gold was petering out, and the majority of the miners moved on to other diggings, 
Greta was already in decline after just three years of boom. Originally part of the My Rerun between Benalla and Beechworth, that Greta area was divided into selections for the common man, post-gold rush in the 1860s. Selectors began moving into the area in great numbers. This chance to select land under a virtual higher purchase scheme from the government was not something that would have been available to this class of people in the old countries, and acquiring land, and therefore security, was the aspiration of many of these settlers. Amongst those first taking up a selection in the area, not many were experienced farmers beforehand, and there was a fairly high failure rate for making their farms productive. But despite all of this, Ellen Kelly must have felt optimistic, and she was keen to find a suitable piece of land which would provide a home and future prospects for her family. No warning bells were ringing for Ellen at this point. Leaving their home in Avenal, the Kelly family and the cart loaded with all their belongings headed up the Sydney road towards Greta. When they first arrived in the area in 1867, they moved into a derelict hotel with Ellen's sisters, Kate and Jane Lloyd, and their ten children. The two women were also on their own. Their husbands, the Lloyd brothers, were, as was now commonplace occurrence for the extended family, part way through five-year prison stints. Setting up home there, it was a comfortable day's travel for the women folk to their father's Glenmore run in the nearby King Valley. Soon enough, Ellen's luck once again took a turn for the worse, though. In January of 68, having recently been released from prison himself, the drunken, amorous James Kelly, Red's wild brother, turned up at their home, thinking himself an attractive prospect for the women. When they rejected his advances, smashing bottles over his head to encourage him out, this only served to infuriate him, and in a rage, he set fire to the building. The women and the children grabbed what they could and ran outside to witness the old hotel burn to the ground. While they'd escaped with their lives, they were now homeless and left with only what they carried out. While the women must have been furious at his behaviour, to the great distress of everyone involved, for his drunken rage, James Kelly was sentenced to death by one Judge Redmond Barry. Fortunately, that sentence was later commuted to 15 years in prison. The Kelly family would have further reason to curse that same judge in the years to come. But it has to be said, it was a spectacularly dangerous thing for James to have done. Firstly, to be behaving in that way he did was bad enough, but setting fire to the building could have killed any or all of them, and there were so many children in that house. As it was, it set back Ellen's plans, leaving them with next to nothing and nowhere to live. Red was right to have distanced the family from the crazy Kelly, Lloyd and Quinn boys. So the now homeless Ellen moved to Wangaratta, and there she took in washing and sewing. Saving up, six months later she had earned enough to take up one of the government selections near Greta, in the parish of Lurg. Ned and Ellen had found a block on Eleven Mile Creek, along the back road to Benalla, about four miles from the Greta township, and available on a seven-year selector lease arrangement. The selection had an existing rough house, typical of those built by poor settlers at the time, constructed of timber slabs with a bark roof and a dirt floor. It had been built by the previous selector and stood on about 88 acres of mostly uncleared bush, so that's just over 35 hectares. 
quite substantial amount of land, really. Ned and Alan were determined to clear it and work it, and Alan set about making their home such as it was comfortable for the family. Around this period, the Greeter Township consisted of two hotels, a blacksmith's and the usual town stores, and in 1870 a small police station was built there too. Dan and some of the older children returned to their education at the Greeter Common School, number 921, which was built there in 1867. Initially that school would have been a state-funded religious school, but with the passing of the Education Act in 1872 it would have become free, secular and compulsory state school. The new Education Act would have required all children aged 6 to 15 to attend unless they had a, quote, reasonable excuse. Though not yet 15, Ned would not have enrolled. Instead, as head of the household, he would have worked at clearing and fencing the land. I think that's a pretty reasonable excuse. The selection agreement required Alan to clear and cultivate at least 20 acres, though we know now most of the land in that region was not generally suited to that kind of cropping agriculture. Jones thinks it unlikely that more than eight or nine acres of their land was ever cultivated, and in some periods none at all. Kelson records two periods, one in 1871 and then again in 1877, where Ellen was in trouble with the Victorian Lands Department for failing to fulfil the cultivation requirements set down by those selection acts. In the end, it was 23 long years before the land would actually belong to her, and she did come close to losing it several times. Like most families on the land in that era, Ellen uh, ran some stock, milked cows, kept chooks, and had a home garden to provide food for the family. Being so close to the main road and four miles from the nearest pub, she was able to make some extra income by offering passing travellers sly grog, meals and accommodation. The sale of spirits in this way was illegal, hence sly grog, but it was a pretty common practice, and Ellen apparently became well known in the area for her hospitality. With Red gone, the tolerance for criminality seems to have increased in Ellen. In February 1869, a felon named Harry Power, his real name was Harry Johnston, had escaped from Pentridge and made his way to the northeast. Power had been in and out of jail many times for various charges. On this occasion, he decided to make his escape and try his hand at bush ranging. Superintendent Francis Hare, who was instrumental later in recapturing him and was also involved in the pursuit and showdown with the Kellys later, wrote in his memoir published in 1892 called The Last of the Bushrangers, an account of the capture of the Kelly gang, reported the extraordinary route power took to escape Pentridge Jail. He said a number of prisoners, including Power, were wheeling out the rubbish cart to the pile outside of the stockade. With the other prisoners taking no notice, Harry hid amongst the garbage pile and the others pulled the cart back inside the compound. And none of the sentries noticed the discrepancy in the prisoner numbers. Apparently he hid there until he could effect a getaway and the alarm was not raised in the prison until the next muster. Harry by then long gone from the area. Ellen's brother-in-law, Tom Lloyd Sr., had spent time in jail with Power, and it seems he made his way to the northeast to remake Tom's acquaintance. 
Indeed, the Lloyd brothers, married to Alan's sisters, were now living with the in-laws in the King Valley, and they appear to have encouraged power to make the Quinn family run a base for his bush-ranging activities. No doubt they received a cut for their hospitality, and power sometimes camped on the land and made various hideouts in the hills above. The Glenmore Run homestead was in a closed valley, virtually under the rock, now known as Harry Power's Lookout. And with a peacock that the Quins kept tethered on their roof, acting as a guard dog, along with the regular guard dog dogs, Harry was always alerted to anyone approaching from the valley below, so it proved to be an excellent hideout. The Quinn boys, the Lloyds and the Kellys gave Harry a great deal of assistance during his time on the run, but he was eventually given up to the police for a substantial reward by at least one of them. The Quinn homestead on the Glenmore Run no longer survives, though the area now known as Harry Powers Lookout is accessible from the Mansfield-Whitfield Road and affords a tremendous view of the King Valley below, where the homestead would once have been. The King Valley is another place worth a visit if you can get to that part of the world. It's full of wineries, bed and breakfast stops and delicious local gourmet produce. Harry, though by this time an older man, had excellent bush skills and in his bush ranging had taken on noted gentlemanly airs. He had a bravado which was highly attractive to the young Ned. Harry seemed able to make fools of the police and this endeared him to many of the struggling selectors in the area, who had continual run-ins with the law and very little respect for the process. Harry was certainly popular enough to foster a broad network of friends there, who might shelter and feed him in times of need, and such friends were no doubt rewarded when he was flush with funds. Harry knew all the hideouts and back paths throughout the hills, and could make his way vast distances across country, keeping himself completely out of police sight. By May of that year, the 14-year-old Ned was riding with him. With his mother's approval, it must be outrageously noted, as a sort of bush ranger's apprentice, and was learning all those lessons firsthand, lessons that would become most valuable in the future when Ned was on the run himself. It is possible Harry compensated Alan for Ned's absence from the farm, probably receiving some of the plunder he gained in his bush ranging during that time. Though I know it's not wise or fair to judge behaviour from the past, hindsight being a wonderful thing, and not actually having lived through it all to understand it, with my contemporary sensibility I cannot for the life of me imagine how Ellen could have thought encouraging her son to ride with Harry Power was in any way a good idea. It's hard enough to keep adventurous and immature young folks out of trouble. How could she not have seen where this was likely to end up? I try and try and put myself in her shoes, but I just can't stop calculating the danger, the likely consequences, and the kind of future this would set up for her son. It seemed a devastatingly unwise thing to me right from the start. A local newspaper, the Benella Enzyme, in April 1870, before Ned had actually been charged, it must be noted, commented on Harry's corrupting influence and stated that he had drawn Ned, quote, into the open vortex of crime, and unless his career is speedily cut short, young Kelly will blossom into a declared enemy of society, unquote. I think we'll find their insight was correct. But as Ned was later supposed to have said, such is life. For poor Ned, anyway. 
Oh well, back to the story. Uh, above the Quinn's property, near the aforementioned and now very appropriately named Harry Powers Lookout, Harry had built an A-framed shelter where he had a bed and rigged up a sling above it to hang his shotgun at the ready, pointed at the entrance, and in a position for him to reach up without even leaving the bed and pull the trigger. He was a man who liked a comfortable plan for all eventualities, it seemed. Nearby, he drilled holes in a hollow stump to allow him a hidden lookout over the valley. This was described as a watchbox at the time. These lookouts and shelters dotted throughout the area would serve to protect him, should the police ever be brave enough to venture off the main roads. And the intelligence he gathered from his local network and from his own lookout points kept him well ahead of those hunting him down. Ned took on the role of his camp cook and aide, and he kept watch and held Harry's horses during hold-ups. Many victims saw that Harry had a young accomplice, but Ned was not immediately recognised. He seems to have delighted in the theatre of Harry's hold-ups and confrontations, and he definitely noted the smart way Harry conducted himself amongst the sympathetic in the community. Ned travelled a great deal with Harry, learning the bushcraft and hidden trails through the deep bush and high plains. But Harry was a demanding and prickly character, and though Ned may have enjoyed the exciting encounters, he would not have had a comfortable apprenticeship with Harry for the most part. After an incident where a suspicious landowner had fired a shot at them, Harry dismissed Ned because the 14-year-old had displayed what Harry considered cowardice. Ned may understandably have been in great shock at the close call, and he seems very happy to have left Harry behind and returned home to Alan's selection, where he resumed his labour on the land. Power soon moved his activities on into other areas, and within months had attracted a reward of £200 in both Victoria and New South Wales. While Ned had been away... William, or Bill Frost, a boundary rider from near Wangaratta, had become a regular visitor to the Kelly house and had started an affair with Ellen. When it became clear she was pregnant to him, he'd promised to marry her, but instead his visits became less frequent and no marriage eventuated. So young Ned was glad to be at home to support his mother in this state and he continued clearing the land, felling trees and splitting wood for fence building and for sale. This amount of physical work being undertaken by a 14-year-old just astounds me. How tough they all were then. A day's painting does me in. Other major events occurred for the Kelly family during 1869. In April, Ned's older sister Annie, all of 15, married 29-year-old Alexander Gunn at Wangaratta. Jack Lloyd, another of Alan's brother-in-laws, was released from jail and returned to greet her. And in August... James Quinn Sr. died at Glenmore, and his son Jack Quinn took over. Now, unfortunately, Glenmore had been unproductive right from the start. It was not to be the positive and hard-working distraction for the boys that old James had hoped, and by his death in August, Glenmore was in the red. Jones records that without the steadying influence of old James, the local squatters anticipated trouble with the remaining clan, and with the added recommendation of Chief Commissioner Standish in Melbourne, they attempted to have the Quinns declared, quote, unfit to hold pastoral licence, unquote. And they hoped the Quinns' bad characters would be sufficient reason to disallow renewal of their licence, and therefore result in, quote, 
dispersing the fraternity that has been so long the pest of the neighbourhood, As it turned out, good character was not a legal requirement to hold a pastoral lease. Who knew? So, in the end, that tactic failed, but the desire to subdue the Quins and the Lloyds ensured the establishment of a Glenmore police station within a year. The unsuccessful Glenmore run, falling even further into debt, was sold a few years later in June 1875. So it's interesting to reflect that perhaps despite being a big drinker, it was Red's influence that was always trying to keep the family on the straight and narrow. Alan, from her more respectable free settler family background, seems to have made some pretty dubious decisions for her family after moving to greet her. And at 14, Ned had been exposed to, indeed was an accomplice to, some very serious crimes. The close proximity of the Wild Lloyds and Quinns, while some comfort to the family, can only have endangered Ned and the other children's prospects further. And a more difficult period was about to begin for Ned. By now, the authorities had figured out he had been the one assisting Harry Power, but they were frustrated at not being able to gather evidence that could lead to a conviction. The police were just biding their time, and soon a skirmish occurred, which again brought Ned directly to their attention. Author Justin Caulfield, who has compiled the most fantastic and thorough Ned Kelly encyclopedia, describes the following incident. On October 10, 1869, a Chinese merchant named R. Fook was travelling through Greta. Calling at the Kelly house, he asked for a drink, as many travellers had done. It was well known that Alan could provide sly grog to those on the road, but Annie, now Annie Gunn, apparently only gave him creek water, which he spat out in disgust. There was a fair bit of resentment towards the often successful Chinese, and it could have been outright racism on Annie's part, or possibly only a misunderstanding. But either way, after tasting the drink, Arfuk spat it out, allegedly abusing Annie, and Ned then came to her defence. It seems probable that Ned chased him off the property with some force, Clearing land and splitting timber would have made the young Kelly a pretty formidable physical presence. Arfuk went to the Benella police station, 14 kilometres away, and he claimed he was attacked and robbed. Sergeant Whelan examined him and found abrasions on his arms and leg. Arfuk claimed that while he was passing near the Kelly homestead, an unnamed man had attacked him, saying, I am a bushranger, give up your money or I'll beat you to death. He claimed he was robbed of 10 shillings, but police found a further £25 hidden in his boots. It was not surprising that Arfuk would be careful hiding his money, as only six weeks earlier he had indeed been held up and robbed by Harry Power. So, luck had not been on his side for a while. But he described the man who attacked him as about 20 years old, 5 foot 8 with no beard or whiskers, brown hair, wearing moleskin trousers and a straw hat with a black band. When Sergeant Whelan and Constable McHenry accompanied Arfuk back to Greta, he pointed out the Kelly homestead as the scene of the attack, and Ned Kelly as the man involved. Now, Ned had tried to run away when the police approached, so they believed they had the right suspect. But Ned denied Arfuk's story, telling his own version about the abuse of Annie, but he was carted off to the Benalla lock-up anyway. Again, we have no way of confirming either version, but both do seem viable at least. So charged with the serious offence of 
robbery with violence, Ned was brought before Justice of the Peace George Sharp, and he was remanded while the police arranged an interpreter for R. Fook. He was held eventually for 11 days, but with the police still unable to provide an interpreter for the court case, he was finally granted bail. The case was heard a few days later on the 26th. R. Fook gave his evidence, but Ned claimed that R. Fook had made up the charge of robbery out of spite at not being served the liquor he wanted. R. Fook's story was uncorroborated, but Ned had three witnesses, his sister Annie Gunn and William Skilling and William Gray, who were employed to assist with the land clearing at the time and were in the vicinity. So, predictably, Ned was acquitted of robbing and assaulting R. Fook. Once again, the police were unable to uphold a conviction against Ned. But a second chance would not be too far away. Caulfield thinks it most likely that R. Fook was originally a miner in the Buckland Valley, where in May 1857, and again in July 1857, there were serious attacks on Chinese miners. He moved to Morses Creek near Bright, where another violent anti-Chinese riot occurred in 1859. His name appears on a list of people to be compensated for their losses after the riots, and this compensation might have provided the funds for him to set up his merchant business. Caulfield further notes that an R. Fook is buried at the Bright Cemetery, dated January 21, 1882. So assuming it's the same person, it seems he did stay on in the region. So this might be a good time to bring episode 5 to a close then, with Ned having served a dangerous bushranger's apprenticeship, and then being fortunate to get off on a serious assault and robbery charge. In the next episode, number six, we'll look at his next run-in with the police. This time, the outcome would not be so lucky for him. Remember that the references for this episode and other supporting material are available at the Australian Histories Podcast website. That's australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and that histories is spelt with an I-E-S. My contact details can be found on tab there also. So have a great couple of weeks. We're going to continue with Ned's story in a fortnight, and I really look forward to talking to you again then. Cheers. Cheers.